0: Welcome to the 23rd episode of the No Degree Podcast. This is your host, United Paul, and today's guest is Dale Degree, the founder and leader of the Sales Rebellion, a sales training and coaching firm. Dale has a passion for music and got his start playing in a band. There were ups and downs, but eventually he settled and started his career in sales. Taking lessons from his father, Dale developed his sales skills and developed a unique approach that set him apart from other salespeople. He became known as a copier warrior and utilized unique strategies that won the hearts of clients. Eventually, he combined all of it to start the sales rebellion. Learn how Dale progressed through his career and the values and lessons that make him who he is today. Subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash no degree. Every contribution is appreciated. This show is impossible without you. Let's get this show started. Welcome to another episode of the No Degree Podcast. And today I have the leader of the sales rebellion, Dale Dupree, and I'll let him introduce himself.
1: What's up, dude? Dale Dupree here, all those that are listening and or watching, right? People are gonna see me too, right? No, no,
0: no, no video. Oh
1: man, that stinks. Cause I have this like really cool background right now, you know, with my Maserati in it and you know, all the things I'm known for. But anyway, Dale Dupree sales rebellion. My company is a sales training and coaching firm uh, globally located right here in Orlando, Florida. And if you say Mickey Mouse, I'm going to hang out on this call.
0: I'm not going to mention that.
1: Can you tell us more about your firm? I got into the B2B world a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, 2007, and I started selling copy machines. I developed a personal brand while I was doing that, the Copier Warrior. I found a new way to sell, an outlet you know, for myself essentially to be creative humorous, my true, authentic form, essentially, inside of my sales walk, and kind of unlocked my own little life hack for being happy inside of work, right? Whereas I think most of the people that I was around and and the circles that I had at that time, especially, were just miserable. Everybody was kind of trying to figure out what they were going to do and who they were going to be. And college you know, was just ending for most of my friends, and they had no jobs. And $50,000 in debt. And and I sat back and just realized that we take advantage of most of what's put in front of us and that sales is actually a role that is extremely simple, but we make it very difficult in the first place. We set these high expectations, have these crazy assumptions as well about what we're supposed to do, what we can achieve, what we can't achieve. And because we build it up as, as such a falsity inside of our mind, we end up failing. I exist in the sales rebellion, Exists in order to bring light to a lot of these subjects. Mental health is a big one for us over here. The power of basic communication and human psychology is a big one for us over here as well, too. But also just kind of flipping the narrative in sales altogether in regards to the way that people approach the market from a cold calling perspective, from an inbound lead perspective. However you look at it, because what most people do in sales sucks. And like, I stand behind that, bro. And I, I'll argue with anybody that wants to put up their dukes on that with love, though, obviously, because the big thing that we also believe is that nobody's wrong about, you know, how they look at sales. Like You can make tons of sales going and selling like one of the big gurus you know, taught you for his course for $9.99. But does it bring you fulfillment? And does it bring your prospect fulfillment? Does it bring your client the value and the impact in which you truly desire and that they deserve?
0: Wow, no, thank you. So let's kind of you really make sales, you just take it to a whole different level, right? You you make it so much so genuine because so much of sales is right this wrapped up BS that a lot of people try to portray and you know these sales courses that teach you techniques, right? But they sort of remove the human element. So let's take it back. When you were in high school, what'd you want to be?
1: Definitely didn't want to be a copier salesman. (laughs) I don't think anybody, you know, wakes up and says You know, at that age, especially be an attorney, you know, or I'm going to be a Supreme. Well, you know what? Actually, I shouldn't say that because I think that at like a young age, you can dream to be a Supreme Court justice for sure, because that's kind of prestigious. But but take it down a notch, you know, like I want to be a pest control person, you know, like that just doesn't happen. But what I realized is that it's extremely creative and adventurous person in high school. And picking a profession really didn't have anything to do with that part of my life. That part still existed it's not like I shut that door by picking a profession. So, in high school particularly, uh, I was dreaming to become a rock star. And so I was chasing that dream too. I was playing in a band locally, going up to the local church and saying, "Hey, can we put on a show here and have all of our friends come out and, you know, mosh in the in the pews, you know, praise the Lord." It, it was good times, dude. And and like we did that, we gained a following through it and we started to get some traction, and we realized that we had the, the desire and the, the longing to become professional musicians, and that we had a good core group of people. And by the time I was 17, which uh, was one year before I graduated, I was a late bloomer. My birthday's in September, so I like get a different graduation date than all the other cool kids. But uh, because of that, um, I was still at home doing school, but we went and recorded our first album. We recorded it with Jeremy Stoska, who actually did... Newfound Glory, Marilyn Manson, some pretty big bands. And we used that as kind of our resume to go get on a record label. And what we did is we did a 52 day tour right around the time I graduated and just a little bit after. And we had no guarantees. Like every night was like, hey, can we just play this show and you don't have to pay us or anything? And so we did, you know, you get a hundred bucks here and a hundred bucks there. But bro, we hustled, right? Like every show we were hustling, we were out slanging merch, selling that CD, and sometimes just giving it away to other bands that we met and getting them to start talking about us. And by the time that we were done with the tour, we had 17 record labels offering us contracts. My life started, like in high school, my work life, quote unquote, started as an entrepreneur. Is really what I was. And I was a salesperson, really, truly, because every night it it was a new group of strange people that I was trying to get to buy into my business, my music, who I was, what we believed in, what we wanted to achieve that night, and what we wanted for the long term of you know what it was that imperial stood for in my band so that was me in high school
0: wow did you do anything else like anything else entrepreneurial in high school other than the music
1: no i don't have any other cool stuff like you it doesn't know, have to be I'll, cool I'll, like yeah like i don't have anything drew like I, I guess i do have i have ideas i had ideas i had but for the most part i i wanted to make music my thing sure like i had all kinds of crazy ideas with my friends and if i would just say to myself at 34 years old, out loud, I would have slapped myself, right? Kind of thing, like you're an idiot. But but I, I loved to dream. I think more than anything, that was my big motivator was to be able to like look deep inside myself and say, I enjoy this idea of chasing things that cannot be accomplished or achieved in the first place, and saying, Well, who cares if that's how people feel about these things? Because I want them. And so the ability again to, to just sit back and say, it doesn't have to be status quo it doesn't have to be what people tell me i can and can't do it just has to be what i put my mind to in the first place and to go and take it for myself because nobody cares as much as you those are the lessons that i learned as a young entrepreneur but but my entrepreneurial life ended you know when i left the band and got back into the b2b world because i'd done b2b with my dad like over the summers kind of thing like My dad would let me go and do a couple sales calls with him and do some dials on the phone. And it was his small business, right? So he was very flexible in allowing us to ruin his reputation. (laughs) But we did a good job at keeping it intact for the most part. You know, we'd hang the phone up and then start cussing instead of while we were still on the phone, right? But I ended up coming back, getting married, about five, six years of doing, you know, touring in my band. And then I came back, I got married, I started working at my dad's company. And then four years later, we got acquired. I never even thought, you know, the thing is, is like what you're asking, like, what did you think you were going to do what you're doing when you're in high school? Like, not only did I nap, but I had no idea what was in store for me, bro. No idea. The things that were going to take place and put me into the success that I ended up earning and gaining. I don't usually tell people is that when I was back, and I shouldn't say I don't usually tell, I just don't tell this part of my story. I've never really asked it. But when I was back home, in between touring, I worked like gig economy jobs, you know, I would do landscaping or I would go work at a coffee shop. And I did that just because I was a hustler. Like I just needed money. I wanted money. It was that mentality of, I want to have a savings account. I want to have a, a, something that I can, I can go and pull from and invest back into myself at some point to be able to enjoy my life and have fun You know, using what money provides from that perspective. And it wasn't until I got a little bit older to realize that the money has to be relevant. Right, like the things we spent it on, I should say, it's irrelevant to the success that we want. So a lot of the time, the money that I was getting was, you know, being spent on eighteen dollars at McDonald's instead of four dollars at McDonald's. Right, but I got out of that that habitual mindset of ruining my life pretty quickly from all angles of the way that I described that. You know, m- stewardship of, of my funds. Stewardship of my body and my health as well, too. So I think in my high school years leading into my first job, what I really learned was a lot about myself and who Dale truly could be and would be today.
0: Let's go into your music career. You did that five, six years. What's the life of a musician, right? Touring and all
1: that. It's insane. It's exactly what people say. And when they quote the rock star life, right, booze, drugs, sex it's all there for you for the taking. And it's up to you as to whether or not you're going to participate and be a part of that status quo and choose mediocrity and your habits and the things that you allow to become what it is that you chase even, and not your true passions. Or if you'll stay motivated and addicted to the impact that you're having on people and creating in the environment that you have put together in regards to your music, in regards to your message, you know, even the the aesthetics, the brand. I mean, all these things are so important. And, and a lot of times, like you can tell, like this band's a stoner band, right? By just looking at the way that they design their album art. It's real life, right? The music life was insane. You know, I have some of the craziest stories, but people probably have way crazier stories than me too. But <laughs> but at the same time, like we went big, like every night we went big, you know. We we would purposefully do things that would cause attention. When we were on stage, we were known as the wildest live act you ever saw, right? That people came from miles around just to watch us go nuts. And the thing was is that you would have to unfortunately participate sometimes too if you were too close. (laughs) So it was fun, though. We We had a blast. We made every night was experiential for the people that were coming. I thrived off that, bro. I loved meeting strangers. My favorite story is Evansville, Kentucky. We played at a pizza shop that they closed down and like reopen for the show kind of thing like the night was done and they reopened it and they moved all the chairs and everything out of the way and there was eight kids that showed up to this show eight kids but this is who we were like we could have cared less we unloaded our stuff put it all up and said y'all ready to kill it and for eight kids we played our heart out the next time we came to town there was 80 kids and the next time we came to town there was there was hundreds of kids This became our second home. We became friends with a couple dozen of them, you know, 20, 25 of them. Like, I can still tell you their names, dude. They're still on my prayer list, you know, before I go to bed at night, you know, kind of thing. Like, they became my family. I love the connection that we made with people throughout the process. But also, there's a lot of turmoil and drama that can happen as well, too, internally. I mean, technically, I was kicked out of the band at one point, but the band collapsed in the midst of me getting kicked out of it. It collapsed, and then I was asked to come back and fix it. and which is pretty funny right but i was out of the band for like two months and it was by their actions and mine as well it was kind of a mutual thing at the end of the day a lot of false finger pointing and things that people were saying to ruin who i was to some extent i don't know why but people suck that's all there was to it. understanding that people suck and loving them regardless is a big lesson that i learned through that time of my life man music was my passion though too. And it still remains like I'm driven by it still. So a lot of the aesthetics of the sales rebellion, even, and the things that we do, like we have a sales rebellion playlist on Spotify and it's inspired by the people we coach, the time that Jeff and I spent writing our first book together, just lots of things that are meaningful and impactful to us that are beyond just like, this is a good beat. Let's throw it on here. you know, Things that actually like cause the heart and the soul and the mind to be impacted and to be moved throughout it. Because we believe in that process in sales as well, too.
0: So you mentioned that obviously that music is definitely like a up and down life, right? You have the highs and the lows. What advice would you have for people sort of planning sort of that career? Like, what would you say to maximize it, right? To avoid the troubles, to mac- to increase longevity and also to be make it so that when they do exit, that they're not starting all the way from the bottom.
1: If you're a successful person from the moment that you decide that you want to be successful, no one can take that from you. And so you could be somebody that, that worked at this company and helped them build this massive sales entity and took them from $8 million to $25 million and then left. And that success will always follow you if you want it to in the first place. So many people tend to say, there was this time in the season of my life when I was successful. Stop lying to yourself about those types of That's a negative perception on yourself. I've talked to so many people too that are like, yeah, I ran you know three businesses into the ground and then started working for somebody else again. I hate it when people say that stuff, dude, because I I always say, well, what businesses? And I listen to the stories when they get to the end and say, yeah, but then this happened. And so we collapsed." I say, well, that's great learning. Sounds like you learned a lot. Like you're in the place that you're in now because of those decisions and those successes, because failure to me is just learning. That's all it is. And people shackle themselves to that failure. They shackle themselves right to it and go, nope, I can't ever do that again. It wasn't any form of success. It was nothing but failure. And I suck. And I'm going to go work for somebody else. But they fail to understand that and sit back and, and realize that it's, it's destiny is what it is. And it's choice more than anything. Why
0: did you end up leaving the music career? Like when did you realize like, hey, my time is sort of coming to an end?
1: I tried to keep it going, but it, it started to come to an end when I decided that I did want to marry my wife, the lady I fell in love with at a young age. And that I wanted to be more committed to her and I wanted to be around her. She stuck with me through all the drama, all the crazy stuff that I went through. Everything. It stuck with me throughout the whole entire process. We didn't break up or anything. And she is my rock, bro. She's my best friend. And I said, well, I need to reward her as well with my actions and attitude because it's not all about you. It's somebody, there's a comment on my LinkedIn right now, one of my posts about where somebody says, I disagree with you because they said people only care about themselves. And then they said, even you. <laughs> it's amazing to me, right, bro? And all of you listening, don't point fingers. Ever at anybody about what you believe or what you think or what your opinion is because it takes that person that you're pointing that finger at to have your own awakening realization and success in the first place instead of sitting back and saying well she's probably okay with me literally traveling all my life i started to sit back and say what would make her happy and how can i accommodate that while still having my own success and my own happiness as well too and making the proper sacrifices while still taking the right amount of risks you know, like right now, we're taking a massive risk. I mean, we're a year into this organization and we're doing well, we're growing, we're hiring, we're expanding. But I've never run a business before, technically, until this. I've always worked for somebody else. I've consulted people and starting and running their businesses. And I've been in the food industry for two and a half years at this point, operating and running a food truck silently from the back end, right? But I've never been at the forefront and been a CEO. So there's a massive risk in that. And and it's the same risk that I took staying on the road and touring with my band, except for the, the concept of how much time I can spend with my family. That's the big piece of the puzzle. And so that question was kind of the answer to why I should stay in the band or not. But I still chased music. Even though I left the band, I still chased music. And I still played, and we played locally, and we recorded music, albums. And I mean, we were on Warner Brothers. So we had the options. Like We had the availability to, to tap into things but then my best friend and one of the founding members he was shooting up heroin and nobody knew i had to make a solid choice for him at the end of that which was i can't do this without him and he definitely can't do this anymore you know this is not conducive to his health and so that was kind of the crash and burn moment at the end of the day but i felt good about it because the choices we made affected his life and they took it to a better place just like the choice i made originally to stop touring as much, you know, and to kind of take a back seat, because I still toured every now and then. Right. But to do that, my decision to do that was based around the health and wellness of someone else, my wife that I wanted, to, my girlfriend that I wanted to marry and my wife.
0: Wow, that's powerful. You left music and then you went to work for your father, right?
1: Yeah, I left music and I went right to work for my father.
0: How is that? Because you went from different lifestyle. Now it's, a little I guess, a little more structured. How did that go in the beginning?
1: It was insane. I I spent two years sucking at sales, you know, and I spent two years at sucking at everything. I sucked at my marriage. I sucked at being a friend. I sucked at my job because it was such a hardcore transition. I got it together, you know, over the course of those two years, but it wasn't easy. And I had my little miniature moments of success, but I worked two other jobs. So I had full time with my dad. And then after that, I would go and bar back at a a bar that my mother-in-law owned. And then I would go and I would work weddings on the weekend and I would bartend there. And I wasn't even like a certified bartender, dude. I just like got into that, you know, like got into that space because I was a hard worker. I was helpful and I understood how to be aware of others more than anything else and aware of their livelihood and their satisfaction. I think that's what made me a good salesperson overall. At the end of the day, was my ability not to be selfish, constantly, because salespeople are selfish. They truly are, and most of them. I shouldn't say all of them, but if we sat back and analyzed ourselves a little bit harder, we would admit it, and I had to admit it at one point, You know, a couple of years into my failures of being a crappy salesperson, I had to say, well, this is why, because I'm over here in these places where I serve, where I truly serve people in the service realms, (laughs) I am Dale and I'm myself. And over here in the copyright world, I'm pretending to be something I'm not. And as I slowly started to drip away from that weird meat suit that I put on and pretended to be Dale with, I started to find my success.
0: What would you say you got better after two years, right? And you realize all this thing. Was there like a month that you just started getting it or just you slowly started getting better?
1: It was a slow roll, as some would say. It took a long time for sure. But the success came like a freight train when I found it, faster than you could imagine and harder hitting than you could ever have thought. I'll never forget when, when we, we started to gain the success and we started to see the, the numbers and my dad wrote me a letter and I still have it to this day. And he talked about what I have done for the company. And I remember feeling pride in that. I remember feeling worth and fulfillment in that. And I just remember being on a whole nother level altogether and thinking, wow, this is, all of this was worth it. You know, all like leaving my passion, walking away from my dream, coming home, working for my dad. You have to be humble to do that to an extent, you know, because I, my dad and I, we were best friends, bro. But I'll tell you right now that I was never going to work for my dad, just like I was never going to buy his house. You know, like he offered me his house more times than I can count. And then when he died, I bought it. Never say never. Anybody that's listening to this ever, you know, say not right now. (laughs) That's what you should be saying, right? Not right now, but never say never. The whole journey was intense at the end of the day. The whole journey was extremely intense. But even when the success got there, this is the thing that most people start to say, we made it, fam. And they chill. Bro, I was like, yo, what's next? What's on the other side of this wall? What's over here? What's over there? I was an explorer. I was adventurous. I was creative with my, my success. I pursued it. I didn't just allow it to kind of happen and come to me and go, damn, I got lucky. I knew that it was intentional action that was creating these things. My dad, he got to a point where because of what we were doing with the business, the ability to to sell the company. And I agreed to it. You know, he told me that I could run it, but I knew that I just couldn't. I just and I don't regret that. People ask, do you regret that? No. I would have literally crashed that company to the ground. I never would have known how to be a CEO. I was really good at sales. I was not a CEO at that time in my life, and I was not ready for it whatsoever. So selling it was the best thing that ever happened to us, but he got diagnosed with cancer shortly after we sold the business. Having somebody else run it from that perspective as well, too, because he wouldn't have been able to consult me. I would have just kind of had to run the stuff by myself. It was a blessing in disguise that the way that he sold it, you know, with everything that slowly started to happen, it was that destiny concept. But, But after he sold the business, we had dug ourselves out of debt, Everything was freaking great. At that point, I was making about the equivalent of about $60,000 a year, though. Now, now, one thing to keep in mind here when you hear that number, because you're thinking, like, I thought you said you had a lot of success in those couple of years. We were writing a ton of business. I was writing a million dollars in revenue. But we were $650,000 in the hole from 2008 and the economic collapse. And so we were literally trying to climb out from under that. And the debt accrued and piled up. I mean, there was times when you would use the gas card to eat dinner, right? Get hot dogs from inside because you couldn't, because everything else was maxed out. There was no money. It was this bigger picture perspective of life that I was living during those times. I was getting to understand what success looked like in the midst of pulling out of the dirt, of the mud, like deep into that stuff, bro. The nastiest mud you've ever been in. And so I appreciated my success a lot more. But so when he sold the business, the first commission check I got with the new organization, because my numbers were so good, my dad just never could pay me straight commission. He could just give me a little bit of money here and there on top of what I made. Uh, my first commission check, I had my phone. I sat there with my phone and I was waiting for my wife to text me because I saw it hit the bank. And she would always check the bank on that day in that morning. And I had seen it hit and I had my cell phone out. I just waited. her to text me and she texted me and she said this is this is rated r for all of you that are listening you're not like put the thing on mute right now if you don't want to hear me say this but she said holy shit this is real and because we had i had promised her from the beginning bro that one day that i would with all this hard work that it would pay off that i I promised her that i promised her always that one day the financial side of this will start to come to fruition and that check was twenty one thousand dollars. that was my first commission check with them and I'm telling you right now, dude, that I never looked back, that that was a very consistent number for me. And it got bigger and bigger and more consistent. I went to the next level real fast. And I spent five years as a rep, the number one rep for the firm, crushing it. Um, and then eventually became the VP of sales for that firm that acquired my father as well, too. Do
0: you mind sharing the story? Because I know you guys they got into debt in 08 But it was sort of getting into that that really taught you a lot about the values of your father and it instilled a lot of the sales things that you still use to this day. Do you mind talking about that?
1: One of the things that I learned in that time was the opportunities that are given to us that sometimes we don't even see in order to impact other people and change the way that they look at life, their perceptions and also their outcomes as well, too. Imagine that you know, you're just doing a transaction with this person, and so you don't really get to see much. But behind the scenes, they have a broken home, they have a problem with alcohol. You know, there's all kinds of things that are on the table, and and here's a person in front of them that's setting an example of hope in the smallest way. And let me tell you what that way was: that some of the customers that we had during that time that said we can't pay our bill, man. My dad would say, "I'll tell you what, we'll leave the copier there. You don't need to pay the bill until you can pay it." and we'll do everything we can to be able to support you, but we won't pick up the machine. So if if you need toner and things like that, we might not be able to afford it either, just depending on like what you haven't paid for. But we're not gonna stress you over it. We're not gonna treat you poorly. We're in this together as a community and we're gonna try to get out together as a community. And imagine that you're on the other side of that in the midst of all the struggles and things that you're going on in in your personal life, the thing that we forget about from eight to five, right? And, and that happens to you in the midst of your business struggles. And you know, my dad impacted people in a way that I know they will never forget till the day that they have gone from this earth, right? And they can't remember anymore anyway because they're not alive. That's a powerful statement to think about. You know, the concept of when you're sitting around and thinking about, man, what a life. And my dad pops into your head and the things that he'd done for you man that's a crazy thought right but i'm gonna tell you the reality of that is in 2010 as we were trying to get out of the swine flu pandemic after going through the recession the recession lingered for us for a little while bro but it about 2010 we saw starting to see the fruit and we started to see it because we started to innovate which was a lot of fun like i, I actually started creating my rebel letter campaign that you can go to crumpledletter.com and find I started creating like those are ideas that I created way back in the day that I used. And it was because of a pandemic and uh, because I decided I wasn't going to participate, basically, just like we haven't participated in this one. We've been setting records and doing just fine. And I'm not saying that's a brag. It kind of sucks to say that knowing what some people are going through. But we're using the success to be able to provide back to our communities because we're grateful. We're not sitting around pocketing it. We're not firing people. We're not saving for the next one. We're spending it, actually, on people that need it, that people that are trying to keep their doors open. A little extra work here, a little extra work there. That my dad taught me these things, bro, because in those moments of understanding that we needed to innovate back in 2009 and 2010 as we were trying to get out of the recession going into a pandemic, my dad said, well, we could give up and we could just kind of like let things lie Or we can push. And so and I was motivated to do that because I started to see the success. And so I created a lot of these creative drops, six-foot cardboard cutouts of myself, empty donut boxes, the Rebel Letter campaign, which is called the Crumpled Letter. All the concepts that I've created that we now teach people, the mindset behind and sell, they came from the innovation of my father's ability to be able to serve. Because that's what I realized it was, is that if I could give you an experience like you've never had in your life, you know, if I could drop off a, a, a little foam squeeze stress ball that looks like a brick and tell you it's for your copier and then give you a cartoon pamphlet that shows you how to throw that brick at the copier to make your, your life better when it's jamming and giving you problems, the person that I'm doing that to is going to have fulfillment. They're going to feel loved. They're going to feel humor in that moment. They're going to feel the stress slip just enough in order to be thankful for what I just did. As opposed to if I call and say, hey, can I speak to your boss? I'm trying to sell him something. Big picture perspective, right? My dad taught me that mindset of a servant leader. And so I carried it out in all of my actions.
0: So you were the VP of sales. Why'd you sort of leave? And what was the next step after that?
1: Uh, my dad died in 2016. He died of cancer. And I got the promotion about the same time. And I actually got my, the largest deal of my life as well, too, in that moment. Or in that time frame. It was like everything was going so good for me in the midst of the worst time of my life. It was really tough. Emotionally, I collapsed, which caused my physical state to collapse as well too, to an extent. I still was extremely successful that year, like the best year ever. And I was the BP on top of my, my specific numbers that I wrote for myself as well. So it was like twofold success, right? But man, I woke up the next year and started to realize that a lot of the things that went on in those four walls, I didn't agree with, that a lot of the people that were there, even though there were some amazing people that I'll never forget, Pat Waters, Chris Geiser, Steve Clapp, Kyle Mielstein, Rich Johnson, my mentor. You know, there were also people in there that treated me like garbage. And there were people in there that were doing things behind the scenes and that some people couldn't see and. You know, there was loyalties that lied, you know, between departments and and you couldn't get past the politics. And I was I was sick of it with my dad passing and kind of feeling tormented by that and that there was really nothing left for me at that organization because, you know, the legacy of my father wasn't with the company we sold to. It was in him and it was in our branch. You know, when I left, I don't know if they just did this like because they wanted to appease me. But when I left, they moved, they closed the branch and they moved it. The one that my dad, like the building my dad and I had worked in for so long. you know, I was like, bye. You know, like they could have cared less. And so I felt those things, you know, like leading up to that, even I felt those things. The culture started to suck. And I walked because as a millennial, and I think most millennials that listen to your show will feel the same way that and Gen Zers, the culture is important. It's typically it's been treated poorly over the years, but that it's important. And then it's time to start to revolutionize that thought process and bring it back.
0: So you left. What came next?
1: Yeah, I left and I I spent 90 days failing. And then after those 90 days, I, I felt like total failure after that. And I wasn't sure what to do. And I basically sought out some mentorship from some close friends. James Carberry from Sweetfish Media was one of them. I got some advice from family members, people in my life that were important to me. People basically said, well, you got this weird thing going on LinkedIn. And this was back in 2017, you know, and they said, you got this weird thing on LinkedIn. You got people like liking and, and commenting on your posts and, and you're in my feed every day when you are posting because I wasn't posting daily at the time. But, you know, they said, you're you're in my feed, like you're the only thing I know on LinkedIn. Why don't you say that you need a job? And so I did. I said, the copier warrior is looking for his next adventure and before you know it, dude, I had more interviews than I could count. I did 47 of them and yeah, before I called it off. And it was only over the course of a couple weeks that I did that. Man, I was like doing five a day, dude. It was stupid. I didn't have a strategy and I just wanted to see. And so I just said yes. When people would say, Hey, would you interview with me? Yeah. And then they'd say, Hey, will you send me a resume? And I'd say, Nope. And I being I was confident in that because I was like, I had hundreds of people message me, bro. So in my mind I was like Because if you say no, then I know you're not the right fit, because someone else in here might say yes, and they'll be the right fit. I gambled, and I landed at a place called Xeno Office Solutions. I went there for the leadership, Keith Rower. Um, I was attracted to his reputation, even though there was some – internally, his reputation sucked. But externally, it was great. And between the two of us, we clicked. And I I saw – and he knew his mistakes, and he was very vocal about them. He was very transparent with me, very honest with me about what was going on. And I felt super comfortable with him. I ended up pulling the trigger with that organization for that reason alone, not for any other reason, but him. And so because I committed to him, I committed to his people. And I put all my effort into the people that he had in that organization to try to make them better. And we built a fun team. It was a very young team. It was a very fun team, too. We were called the Net New Kids on the Block because we themed our team name around the new kids on the block and something that the copier world calls net new business which is anytime that you bring in a sale from somebody that's never had a transaction with you before and we wanted to be the team that did the most of that because that's what i was known for in the copier world the five years six years that i was a rep that's what i did i wrote over 60 net new accounts a year and that's the average is tiny compared to that right so i had something different than most people just didn't have in general. And I wanted to live that out through a team. Unfortunately, the guy I went to work for, they sacked him within like two or three months of me being there. And so I had to work under somebody that I didn't sign up for, who I candidly have no problem expressing, treated me like garbage, not to my face necessarily, even though there was sometimes to my face for sure, but he had people spying on me. And maybe there was more than just him, maybe it was other leaders of the organization, But the people that I would go to to try and talk about these things would basically tell me that they weren't interested in helping. And, you know, I did a bang up job at that location. We created a culture. The branch had its best year and it was it was the up and coming next thing. Um, And then I quit at the end of that year. So I spent about a year and and like four or five months with them. And then I was gone just like that. But again, it came down to culture, the way people were treating me. What was happening? And dude, this is this is the biggest reason why I started the Sales Rebellion, because I sat back and said, it's crazy that people do this. They don't have to. They don't have to be so focused on their two hundred and fifty thousand dollars salary, you know, and their big fat commission overrides that get them up to that seven figure mark, you know, with all these transactions, because that's all they're focused on. How many times can we hit the cash register? They don't care about the people. They don't care about the relationships with the clients internally. I realized that. Most companies share that belief from a leadership standpoint. And, and I did because it wasn't just my orgs that were doing that, that were treating people that way and that were, you know, very blind at the top. It was everybody, bro. I was having lunches and dinners and virtual coffees with people all over the world all of a sudden because the copy warrior took to the to the LinkedIn streets and became a you know a content king, as people like to say back in the day when we first started. And and I amassed a huge following. And so I was other, asking other top reps. Well, what's it like at your office? And started to realize we all feel this way. And so I started the sales rebellion to be vocal about it like this and to let other people know that there's a a training org, coaching and training org that works more like sales therapy in some cases that has your back and we get it and we'll help you be successful in the midst of all the turmoil that you're experiencing or to help you find a new job, you know, one or the other.
0: (laughs) That's cool. Before you said Years earlier, you weren't ready to be a CEO. Why did you feel you were ready at this point?
1: Super transparent here. I didn't necessarily feel I was ready at this point, at that point by any means. But what I was ready to do was to lead. I'd already been a leader. I knew what to do, how to do it. And I was ready for more. I was ready to lead the masses. I was ready to become a shepherd and not just a really good salesperson and not just a really good VP of sales. I wanted to serve to a higher capacity, and I realized that the only thing I was serving was my local community, but I had a bigger one that I was developing that, that was growing around me, and I knew that it was going to be a risk, and I was going to have to learn a lot, and I'm still learning a lot, but I knew it was time, and quite frankly, I'm a spiritual person, and through prayer, it was revealed to me, bro, you're going to have to get uncomfortable. To be in comfort is to live in stagnation is to live in mediocrity. Even if you are making a half a million dollars a year, if you're comfortable, you're not challenging yourself, you're not growing, you're not learning. And at some point, those things will catch up to you. And so I said, all right. <laughs> and I left all my safety, my six-figure salary, all the things that I knew, because I'd done nothing but sold copiers up until that point, And I walked. And, but the thing is, is that I've been prepared, bro. I've been using my aptitude and learning other people's products and how they sold them for years. And I had realized it as I started to get deeper into a sales community outside of copiers, when I started to talk to telecommunications people, the financial advisors, you know, when I started to get into other industries, I started to question like, why do you do it this way? You know, Well, because this is the way that it's always been done. Well, try this and this and tell me what happens. Bro, I got the appointment. Bro, I got the sale. And I started to realize that if I would put my mind to it, and if I would sit back and take the time to learn other industries, I could serve them. I'm good at learning. I'm homeschooled, so my mom homeschooled all me and all my siblings, and, and homeschoolers are not Mormon cults that you know do nothing and don't watch movies, right? Like that's not the truth. What we do is we do school all the time. Is so that we learn constantly. Now, I mean, my mother raised warriors that were very very educated to go out into the into the world and succeed. From that mindset she told one of the things that she taught me, I should say, was what aptitude was and how important it was. And the ability to also understand that you can do it if you want. You know, so I might not have all the the certifications and you know all the all the bullshit that people get in those industries that I serve in order to learn the product better and to be told that they're a master at it. But I bet I know it better than most of them, right? Because I put in the work and because I believed in street smarts more than I did in degrees and accolades.
0: How would you say the sales industry has changed over time? Because a lot technology has really changed the way a lot of things are done. What changes have you seen?
1: You're not going to like this answer. I don't think most people will like it. It hasn't changed. It's still the same bullshit that it's been since the 1970s. And not enough people say that. Yes, the phone is important, and yes, it will definitely get you sales. But, But listen, I didn't use it as frequently as people go out and preach, and I wrote more business than all of the ones doing that. And it's not because I got lucky or I'm different. It's because I tapped into the basics behind communication, behind people, behind my authenticity. I stopped looking at negotiations and started saying, why don't I participate in fellowship with these people? I stopped saying my product was the only thing that mattered and started focusing on people. I stopped sitting back and saying the commission check is what I'm chasing. And I started looking at culture and community. I started to change my mindset and the landscape of the way that I looked at sales. And it all fell into place alongside the the fulfillment that I have and that I had throughout my career.
0: It's been a little over a year since you've done the sales rebellion. What are some successes and what are some failures over that year?
1: Yeah, the, I'd say the the failures have been awesome because they're just they were accounts essentially a couple of clients that we we gave too much into and, and we dug too deep into and without reward or you know with with tons of false and negative perceptions on their parts you know basically finger pointing and and not on performance just in general like just stupid shit for lack of a better way to say it so we realized that okay like we do want to serve and give every single piece of who we are, but they also have to give every single piece of who they are back to us. And so we started to find people that were true to themselves, and we started to find students that, that really wanted to challenge who they were and not make excuses about why they couldn't, quote unquote, afford training anymore or needed to move on to something else. You know, because most of those times when people said that, I just kind of laughed at myself and thought, just tell me the truth and then tell yourself the truth you're afraid to work this hard. You're afraid to try these things. You're afraid to choose this concept of legacy over what it is that your quota tells you that you have to do. And because people are so timid and afraid of the unknown, you know, we found quickly that we needed to communicate that differently and more effectively for people. And because a lot of times people can hear our message and say, that's what I want, but maybe it's not what they need. And so we got a little bit pickier about those types of things and we found our our stride. You know, when we went from a low six figure intake to a high six figure intake at this point, we will be we're shooting for a million this year in our first, it'll be our second year, right? We're shooting for a million, we're shooting for the stars. <laughs> but we're gonna get close. We're gonna get real close. I'm gonna tell you that right now. And and that will be a massive increase because we only did two hundred thousand in our first year. And I was the only person selling as well, too, right? So an transaction range anywhere from two hundred and fifty bucks for like one time coaching session. All the way up to twelve hundred bucks a month for a six month commitment for individual contributors, and then companies, you know, can pay anywhere between twenty five hundred bucks and twenty thousand dollars. It was like finding our our cherry spots and like going out and using our LinkedIn network and being able to to find the quality that we desired and that we wanted. And at this point, we've had two record months over the last two months. So in the last two months, in the worst time in the United States in the world, in most cases, because of this pandemic and for the economy, when it comes to people being able to spend money or be normal inside of an economic standing, we have been thriving. And I believe that it's because of our ability to have been able to sit back and say, we got to stay away from these things and double down on what we can control and be able to to focus on quality and things that are basic, you know, that we already knew anyway, but we needed to fail in them regardless, just to see what happened.
0: Was there ever a time you're Lack of a degree ever stopped you? Did people ever give you stuff or crap about it?
1: People give me crap to this day. People still have this false narrative around degrees in general. The education system is broken, bro. And you and I, I know you and I already align on this whole concept, you know, I, and guys like Justin Wynn and Daniel Botero, you know, those are my people. And mostly because they're out teaching people that to be careful about their degree. And not to just go rushing into one and not to think that they have to have one in the first place to become successful. Yeah, you know, I had people call me uneducated and stupid and, and the whole homeschooling thing came up constantly. Like, you don't even have a real education to begin with. What kind of dumbass are you? I heard it all, but bro, I'll tell you right now that those are the types of things that there's two kinds of people in this world. There are the people that hear those things and allow them to negatively affect them. And there are people that hear those things and feel nothing but love for the person that are saying them. And by doing so, it allows you to not be distracted by the way that they feel or what it is that they're spitting. It doesn't matter. Their opinion and their voice is just that. It's theirs. It's not yours. For me, it was never an issue, per se, but definitely came up in many conversations and was used negatively toward my existence.
0: Really sorry to hear that. Let's wrap up. If you could go back and tell yourself something earlier, what would you have told yourself?
1: I love this question because I, I don't know that people answer it this way, and, and, and that's why I always love hearing it because I'm like, cool, this is actually one that I, I think, out of everything I say, that might be different than most people. but Because I like to give people a unique experience. That's one of my favorite things. I always feel that if I can give somebody a unique experience, that I've done my job. I have allowed them to think a little bit differently and to challenge themselves and to grow. When I think about going back to myself, you know, like, let's just say at 18 years old, I think that I would tell him nothing. And the reason why is because my 18-year-old self did not have ears to listen at all. My 18-year-old self would hear my advice and I could have told him the second coming of Christ and the date that he's coming and like, be prepared. And my 18-year-old self would have been like, cool, walked out the front door, thrown a beer in the front yard, lit a cigarette up, got in the car, donuts in the in the cul-de-sac, you know, with the middle finger out the window, right? Like to myself and drive off. That's what my 18-year-old self would have done. And I think that it's what most 18-year-olds would do in the first place. And so when when people answer that question, I always just think to myself, it doesn't matter what you would have known. You still were going to be who you were at that point in time, no matter what. You can't change that, especially in hindsight. You can't change it. You have to embrace that suck. You have to believe in who your 18-year-old self was. You have to know that the lessons learned were important and that they are what built what you know today in the first place.
0: I definitely agree with you. How would people get in touch with you? You know, what are some of your social media handles?
1: Yeah, they can Google Dale Dupree and literally they can find everything. It's kind of wild, but they can also go to salesrebellion.com, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at salesrebellion linkedin.com backslash in backslash copier warrior leader of the rebellion on tiktok at sales rebellion on youtube i can keep going snapchat snapchat come find me on snapchat people i bet y'all can't find me i dare somebody to find me on snapchat i'm not even going to say the name so we're everywhere bro we we believe in in the power of social media and the, the platforms themselves and the different messages that they allow us to get out to the people um and get ready for 2020 and 2021 folks because you're not going to just see a bunch of dale you're going to see a bunch of sales rebels out there storming the gates because we're here to tear down castles and build a kingdom
0: i'm super excited to see that kingdom grow thank you so much for your time i know the listeners are gonna get a lot of benefit from this episode and really appreciate you coming on
1: thanks for having me bro always a pleasure
0: all right have a good one another great episode Thank you for listening. Hopefully this information was valuable and you learned a lot. Stay tuned for the next episode. This show is sponsored by you. No degree wants to remain free from influence so that we can talk about the topics without bias. If you think the show's worth a dollar or two, please check out our Patreon page. Any amount is appreciated and we'll go towards making future episodes even better. Follow us on Instagram or Snapchat at No Degree Podcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash no degree, I-N-C. If you want to personally reach out to me, connect or follow me on LinkedIn at Junaid Iqbal. Spelled J-O-N-A-E-D. Last name I-Q-B-A-L. Until next time, no degree, no problem. NoDegree.com.
1: Yeah, so... You got no degree? No problem. No problem. Any problem, we can solve. We em. got this. Linked insomnia keeps us evolving. Growing in and knowing. Wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going. If you didn't know, now you know.
0: Let's sing that again, everybody.
1: No degree, no problem. Any problem we can solve. Em. LinkedIn insomnia keeps us evolving We're growing in the knowing, the wisdom is flowing If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going No degree, no problem, any problem we can solve them. LinkedIn insomnia keeps us evolving We're growing in the knowing, the wisdom is flowing If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going Yeah.